Leviticus 12, the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, A woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter, for two weeks the woman will be unclean, as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. When the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her and then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. If she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. Turning now to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 40. And they're on page 725 of the Red Pew Bible. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as, is the, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, for which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marvelled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She had never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. 
Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Amen. Happy Boxing Day, everyone. Is that, a, is that what you're supposed to say on Boxing Day? Happy Boxing... You know, I've got, I've got no idea what Boxing Day is about. Does anyone know what Boxing Day is supposed to be about? Boxing, yeah. Uh, but what I do reckon is... <laughs> That's right. I reckon that there are three things about Boxing Day which uh, kind of sum up Australian culture. Uh, what do you think those things might be? What, 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 what do you think are the big things about Boxing Day that kind of sum up Australian culture? Cricket, sport, uh, anything else? What's that? Yacht race, something up the back there? Barbecues, yep, thanks Judith, good to have you back in uh, the, the, the best part of the world. Uh, anything else? So we've got barbecues, resting, sleeping, yep. Boxing Day sales. Oh, look, I reckon there's a few good things there. I picked the th my three top ones were this one, the uh, uh, Sydney Hobart Yacht Race. Uh, that sort of the starting uh, gun for that goes off this afternoon. Then there's the uh, Test Cricket, fourth, uh, uh, the fourth Test in Melbourne today. That one is uh, from, uh, from 1994 when the Aussies beat the Poms by about 250 runs, so uh, we're hoping for something similar. And of course, there is the Christmas Day, uh, the Boxing Day sales, uh, where people just kind of endure the crush uh, in order to pick up a good bargain. I think Harvey Norman's got some uh, plasma TVs down there today, one day only sale, and uh, I'm glad you're here and not there. Um, but, you know, whatever it means, Boxing Day, it you know, in Australian culture, it is a pretty good follow-up to Christmas Day because uh, for many people, Christmas Day is about pleasure, isn't it? Uh, Christmas Day is about family, it's about friends, it's about food. And, and even, I dare say, even the image that a lot of people have of Jesus uh, fits pretty well into Aussie culture. You know, the, uh, the newborn baby lying in the manger, you know, with the cows and the sheep and the shepherds around him. It's a pretty nice kind of warm, peaceful sort of, uh, you know, it's got that feel about it, which is very non-confronting. It is, it is very non-challenging, uh, and therefore it fits pretty nicely into the Australian Christmas Day to New Year's Day kind of holiday season. The problem, I reckon is that for a lot of people, their view of Jesus is simply the baby in the manger. And it's pretty hard for that to be anything else other than just a lovely kind of picture. Um, but today, when we look at this passage from uh, Luke chapter 2, if you'd like to open it up, by the way, in your Bibles, Luke 2, and there's an outline for you on your service sheets, uh, the image of Jesus as being the inoffensive... Um, the cute, cuddly, uh, non-confrontational baby in the manger is absolutely demolished uh, in Luke chapter 2. And it's because of that that I've decided to call this sermon The Offence of the Manger. I reckon the manger 
when you understand it properly, is very offensive. Um, yesterday, uh, who was here for Christmas Day service yesterday? Good on you. You guys made it back two days in a row. That's fantastic. Uh, yesterday, Peter preached on the first half of Luke chapter 2. And it was pretty challenging, actually, even though he just did focus on the manger. It was very, very challenging. Um, in the second half of Luke 2, we, we read about what happened after the shepherds left. And uh, the passage tells... I'm going to break the passage up into two sections here. Uh, we're going to look at what Mary and Joseph did after the shepherds left. And secondly, we're going to look at who they met after their uh, dealings with the shepherds. So first of all, um, what did Mary and Joseph do after the shepherds left? Um, culture is an interesting thing, and uh, even today in different cultures, there are different uh, cultural things that happen after a baby is born. Um, in our family, Cassie's Chinese, as, uh, if you're regular here, you know that. And in our, in, in our family, uh, according to her culture, after each of the babies was born, Cassie was forced by culture to have one month of complete rest, doing nothing except feeding the baby. It's pretty good, isn't it? And the, by cultural tradition, the family provided a live-in maid for a month. I found that really hard to handle for about five minutes. I remember when the maid arrived, she headed straight to the kitchen. She started chopping up food. Within an hour, there was a banquet. I sat down and I ate the banquet. And after the meal, I got up to put my plate in the sink and I was told, no, that's not your job anymore. <laughs> it took me five minutes to get used to that idea. Uh, and during that time, Cassie was fed, and I can say this, Cassie's not here at the moment, um, Cassie was fed medicinal foods uh, for a month, foods that were designed to heal the uh, internal parts of the body. And then at the end of the month, there was a celebration. Cassie was allowed out and we went to a restaurant and we had a great celebration. That's in her culture. Uh, in the postnatal culture of first century Palestine, uh, they had some traditions as well. They had traditions which were based on God's law. And we see some of those traditions here in the passage. Um, let's have a look at uh, this for a moment, shall we? Uh, the first thing to say is that Mary and Joseph were people who loved God and they wanted to obey God's law and they wanted to obey God. And so in verses 21 through to 24, <clears throat> there were a few things that had to happen. I think we better read these verses again. Um, verse 21, check it out. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves and or two young pigeons. Okay, so that's the uh, tradition. 
and it's in accordance with the law of God that was in the passage from Leviticus that was uh, read to us by Joanne earlier on. One of the things that happened had to happen? First of all, circumcision. Uh, for Jewish boys, that is what happened on the eighth day. Um, some people circumcise boys these days. I'm not sure what all the issues are there. But uh, for Jewish boys, circumcision uh, was a symbol uh, in relation to God. It, it was a symbol that God had been gracious to the descendants of Abraham, uh, that God had uh, made a promise to the descendants of Abraham that he would be their God and they would be his people. And the circumcision symbolised the fact that that child, that son, was one of those descendants of Abraham. So what we say is that circumcision was a, a symbol of the covenantal relationship uh, that God had with his people and that they were to be different. That's the first thing, but what you'll notice in verse 21 is that that is not the main reason why Luke mentions the circumcision. Uh, the main reason that Luke mentions the circumcision was because it was on the eighth day and it was on the eighth day that they named the child. Now, uh, that's important because what did they name the child? They named the child Jesus. Why did they name the child Jesus? Well, because earlier on, the angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary and said, you are to name the child Jesus. What does Jesus mean? It means the Lord saves. And the angel Gabriel said to Mary, you shall name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, they could have named him something else, but they chose to be obedient and they named him Jesus on the eighth day. Now, um, after the birth of a son, or after the birth of a son or a daughter, a woman, a Jewish woman, was considered to be ceremonially unclean. Now, we could talk a whole lot about that. Uh, I don't really have time to today. Uh, the bottom line is this, that uh, in the Old Testament, ceremonial uncleanness was often associated with two kinds of things. Uh, sometimes it was associated with the, the transformation of a person's status uh, and it was also often associated with blood flow. Now, with childbirth, both of those things are involved. Um, in Leviticus 12, uh, when a woman gave birth, she was considered to be ceremonially unclean for 33 days. And so what that meant, amongst other things, was that for 33 days she was not to go to the Lord's sanctuary uh, or, in Mary's case, uh, she was not to go to the temple because by then the temple had been built, of course. Um, you'll notice there, it, uh, well, well that, that's what happened anyway. Um, now, what we, what we see here is that in verse 22, after 33 days in Bethlehem, this new family left Bethlehem and they went on a journey to Jerusalem. Uh, why did they want to go to Jerusalem? Because they wanted to go to the temple. Uh, 
Um, by the way, has anyone been to Jerusalem? A few people have been. How far is Jerusalem from Bethlehem? Any idea? Sorry, David? 12 miles. Any, uh, any other takers? No? Five miles. Brad says five miles. Uh, I, I, I'm going to put my money on what Brad said, actually. Um, uh, five miles, uh, which is about eight kilometres. If you get onto Google Maps when you go back home, you can check that out. It's about eight kilometres. Bethlehem now is in Palestinian territory. But uh, the, the point of this is that uh, the trip from Bethlehem, we, sometimes we think that that must have been a long journey. Well, it wasn't. It was about eight kilometres and not a terribly difficult journey, although it might have been a bit more complicated if you've got a newborn baby uh, that you're taking with you. Uh, but the bottom line is that they went from Bethlehem to Jerusalem and they went there for a purpose. Now, when we have babies, we tend to receive gifts from people, don't we? You know, nappies, booties, all that sort of stuff. But when Jesus was born, it was his parents who gave gifts. And you see that in the passage. First of all, they presented Jesus to the Lord. They committed him to God. But also, have a look at this in the passage. They also had to give the Lord two birds. Do you see that? They had to give him two birds, uh, two, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. You see that in verse 24. Now, what's behind this? Well, uh, what lies behind this actually is a little snippet of information which um, tells us something about the family that Jesus was born into. Uh, because in Leviticus 12, after a child was born, uh, the woman had to offer up two sacrifices to God. Uh, one of the sacrifices was to be a one-year-old lamb and the other was to be a pigeon or a dove. Now, the problem is, what if a young family could not afford a one-year-old lamb? Well, there was a poverty provision in there as well. And instead of a lamb and a pigeon, uh, they could, if they were poor, sacrifice just two pigeons. Now, what that tells us was that the family of Jesus was not rich. Uh, they were poor. Uh, Jesus, and there's theological issues here, it tells us that Jesus, the King of Heaven, uh, when he was born, he was not born into wealth and status and privilege. Uh, in fact, he was born into poverty. Um, Paul reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians when he says that, uh, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich, spiritually rich. Uh, the, the Lord of the universe was born into a poor family. And the, this postnatal program um, teaches us three things. Firstly, uh, it teaches us that Joseph and Mary wanted to obey God's law. Uh, secondly, it teaches us that right from birth that Jesus was under God's law. And thirdly, and I reckon this is really important, um, sacrifices and circumcision were not just some sort of quaint or maybe not so quaint Jewish custom. 
they were there for a reason. They were instigated by God as a reminder of human sin and of God's grace. Not that childbirth is sinful, obviously, but the whole system of sacrifices that the Jews lived by uh, was designed by God to remind his people that things were not right between them and God. That there is such a thing called sin and that a price must be paid for sin. Now, so far so good. They're doing everything by the book. Why is this baby Jesus so offensive? Well, second part of the sermon, let's check out the people that they met at the temple. Uh, First of all, there was a man by the name of Simeon. Uh, We meet him in verse 25. Let me read verse 25 and a little bit after that for you. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God. And he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace for my... My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. Now, imagine this scene. Um, Joseph and Mary front up at the temple uh, with their little baby in tow, and there's this guy there who has literally been waiting for this event for years um, because God had especially told Simeon that he would not die until his eyes had laid hold of the Saviour of the world. Notice the work of the Holy Spirit in Simeon's life. Um, In verse 25, the Holy Spirit was upon this man. In verse 26, the Holy Spirit had told him that he would not die until he had seen the Christ. And then in verse 27, the Holy Spirit moved him to enter into the temple courts at the right time where he saw Jesus. Now, this was no fluke, was it? The Holy Spirit was behind this. This is what you'd call a divine encounter if there ever was one. Uh, The Holy Spirit was responsible for this meeting. God was working behind the scenes to make sure that this happened. Uh, What was it that had kept old Simeon alive all these years? He longed for the day when God's saviour king would finally come and now this is the day he dreamt of. So he says, Lord, dismiss your servant. (laughs) Let me go home. It's a good event, isn't it? There's another person that they met that day. Uh, a lady, we read about her in verse 36. It says, There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Thanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and, there was a, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, 
She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. How, how do you find, how do you define greatness? Um, who are the people who are truly great um, as Christians? Who are the truly great people of God? I wonder if sometimes if we can confuse spiritual greatness with worldly greatness. I wonder if sometimes we can think that you know because a person is gifted or because they're successful, that that somehow makes them great. It's not so, is it? That is actually not what greatness is about. Uh, here we have an example of a truly great person. Now, this lady, uh, she's, there's nothing particularly flash about her. She's 84 years old. <laughs> she's 84. Um, in verse 36, she's from, do you see what tribe that she came from in verse 36? She's from the tribe of, of Asher. That's an interesting little bit of information uh, when you think about it because Asher was one of the ten northern tribes uh, one of the ten lost tribes of Israel and uh, what we see here is that they were not completely dissolved that there was a remnant that there were still people from those ten tribes that were living uh, in Jerusalem and Anna is one of them she's from the tribe of Asher uh, she has been a widow for most of her life she, many people would look at her and say well she's an insignificant person a nobody Yet I want to suggest to you that she is one of the greatest women who has ever lived. Um, because what is it that she had spent her days doing? In verse 37, worshipping God, fasting and praying. What was she praying for? She was praying in verse 38 for the redemption of Jerusalem. What that means is that she was praying that God's king would come. Now, that meant that she was praying for the greatest event that's ever happened. And God answered her prayer. That's greatness. I, I think, by the way, that we should um, look to her example and pray for the second coming of Jesus, shouldn't we? Uh, pray for the next great event. You want to be great in God's sight? Well, pray for the second coming of Jesus. So far, though, you'd still have to say that this story fits in very beautifully with the Australian kind of Christmas, Boxing Day, New Year, holiday season. You know, it's, it's a great story about two elderly people receiving what they wanted and feeling satisfied. There's nothing challenging in it until you look more seriously what Simeon actually said when he spoke to Mary. Verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What does he mean by that? I mean, this doesn't sound like great news, does it? Um, when you go down to the verse 40, Luke tells us that Jesus grew in strength, in wisdom and in the grace of God. That's what he would become. But here in these verses, 
This is prophecy. Uh, this is Simeon's prophecy about what Jesus was going to do in his life. Uh, he will be righteous, but Simeon says that he's going to offend many people. Because in verse 35, he would expose their sin. And therefore, in verse 34, he would be greatly opposed. He would be spoken against. Now, I reckon we see this all the time, don't we? I'll give you an interesting example. A few, a few years back, a couple of us from church did some um, door knocking. Um, it was around Christmas time and we wanted to talk to people about the real reason for Christmas and so on. And uh, there was a lady, non-Christian lady, invited us into her home. And uh, shit, the place was all decked out for Christmas. She had the Christmas tree... You know, beautifully decorated presents around the Christmas tree. There was, you know, Christmas cards hanging everywhere and some of them with nativity scenes on them. There was tinsel, there was Christmas lights I could see outside the house and so on. And we're talking to this lady and she was saying, yeah, Christmas, absolute, my favourite time of year. Absolutely love Christmas. It's, you know, it's absolutely terrific time. And then I mentioned Jesus and the conversation just kind of froze. That was the end. She didn't want to talk any further. And you see, I, I thought that it's kind of a snapshot of, um, of, of sin, really. It's a snapshot of sin because it's saying we love the baby in the manger, but that's exactly where we want to keep him, in the manger, where he doesn't rule our lives, where he doesn't cause any offence. But he came to offend because we all need to be offended by Jesus. Uh, we all need someone who will actually expose the sinfulness of our hearts. And we need someone who will then pay for our sin. Simeon told Mary that a sword would, would pierce her heart. And there can be no other thing that that is referring to other than being a prophecy about the cross. That a mother's heart would be pierced when Jesus would hang and die, when he would pay the guilt for our sin. It may not have been what Mary wanted to hear, but it is why Jesus came. Uh, you see, the manger is offensive. It tells us that we are sinful. It tells us that we need a saviour. And not everyone is really thrilled about that message. In verse 34, Simeon says that Jesus was going to divide people. That, you know, some would be, some would rise. You know, they would be saved. Others would fall. They would be judged. And we see that ourselves, don't we? Um, for many people, Jesus is just a part of the whole Aussie Christmas. But by the time that Boxing Day rolls around, people forget about Jesus as they kind of lose themselves in the Sydney to Hobart yacht race or, you know, vegging out in front of the TV watching the cricket or, uh, you know, getting involved in the department store sales. So, and then there's a whole summer holiday and then 
2011 rolls on and kicks in and we're just back to the normal routine of life. And that's a wrong response to Jesus. If that is what Christmas is about, then that's a complete failure. Um, the, the editorial in Friday's Herald was pretty interesting, I thought. Uh, it was all about Christmas and I don't think it was written by the regular editor, by the way, because uh, of, of its theological bent. And it started off by making some very insightful comments about our society and who we are as people. But then it attempted to explain the meaning of Christmas. And it said that there are three kinds of people for whom Christmas has a message. Uh, firstly, there are Christians, and Christmas has got a message for Christians. Uh, then it said there are religious people who are not Christians, like Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and so on, and Christmas has got a message for them. And then it said that there are the non-Christian non-religious and Christmas has got a great message for them as well. So a whole half, you know, half the editorial is on the meaning, the message of Christmas for all of those. You know what? Uh, at no point did they actually get it right. At no point did they actually explain the true meaning of, Christian, of Christmas, that it was completely devoid of the gospel. And one of the, uh, just to illustrate that, um, the editorial said that part of the message of Christmas for, for the, the non-religious non-Christians, okay, you, you know who it's talking about, the non-religious non-Christians, it said part of the message of Christmas for those people uh, is this. It said Christmas teaches us, quote, that if good neighbourliness is possible one day of the year, there is no reason why it should not exist on all others. End of quote. You hear what it's saying? If we can be nice and good and cheerful and joyful to each other for one day of the year, then the message of Christmas is that we should be like that and we can be like that for the other 364 days of the year. And there's no reason why we shouldn't. Well, I want to say, yes, there is a reason. There is a reason why we can't be like that for the other 364 days of the year. What do you think that reason is? It's one word begins with S. Sin. The sinfulness of our hearts. The, the fact that we want to live our lives our way without God. It's all very well to be merry and cheerful for one day of the year. We don't have the power, we don't have the capacity to be perfect for the rest of the year and that is because of sin. You see, Jesus did not come so that we can have Christmas Day. Jesus didn't come so that we could have Christmas Day every year and feel inspired by that for the other 364 days of the year. Because Christmas Day does not and cannot fix sin. Only Jesus can do that. And he did it by entering our world in order that he might die on the cross.
And it's what we see in this passage because, friends, at the beginning of Jesus' life here in Luke 2, at the beginning of Jesus' life, he went with his parents to Jerusalem to perform a sacrifice. Well, at the end of his life, he was in Jerusalem because he was the sacrifice. When he died on the cross, when he paid the guilt of our sin, and this is a challenging and a confronting Jesus. This is not the Jesus who you can sort of pack away in his manger and just drag him out again next year. This is the Jesus who offends us and confronts us because he really, really, really loves us. And he died for us in order to save us. That is the Jesus of the manger. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you uh, that uh, in your great love for us that uh, Jesus stooped into our world, uh, into a poor family. We thank you that uh, he was obedient uh, to you throughout his life. And we thank you, Father God, that he came for a purpose, uh, not to give us Christmas Day, but to give us salvation. We pray for each one of us that we would allow Jesus to offend us so that we might actually come to grips with our uh, state before you and that we would trust in Jesus, that his death on the cross has paid the guilt for our sin so that we can be in right relationship with you. We pray, Father God, that we, like Simeon and Anna, would be devoted to Jesus and we would look forward to his coming again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.